Welcome to 3 a.m. What's Keeping You Up at Night, brought to you by the McFarland Group. Our podcast conversation is driven to bring you the best stories from social impact superstars to answer questions, provoke action, and inspire you. We named the podcast 3 a.m. What's Keeping You Up at Night because many of us wake up in the middle of the night with questions, ideas, concerns, and sometimes regret. According to traditional Chinese understanding of how the human body works, it is the time in a person's daily cycle when the body intersects the work of detoxification, rest, recovery, and planning. So a perfect time to begin to maximize your impact, to disrupt the status quo to make the world better. For this episode of 3 a.m., What's Keeping You Up at Night, we chat with Michael Woodnorth, founder of Woodnorth Advisory. Michael is a former investment banker and Vanderbilt MBA grad who is determined to help those working to make the world better. Woodnorth Advisory blends the effectiveness found in for-profits with the notable impact nonprofits provide, creating alternative revenue streams for those in the social impact space. They help mission-driven organizations maximize their social impact through sustainable and scalable strategies. We have a lot to talk about, so let's jump in. Michael, thank you for joining us on 3 a.m. What's Keeping You Up at Night? You are the perfect guest for this particular episode in this particular time. We are in the moment of COVID-19 here in Nashville, and Michael and I are actually having this wonderful conversation virtually. So with the thanks of Relationary Marketing, they have set us up so that while we won't be able to see each other, we can still have this wonderful conversation. So, Michael, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me this morning, Deb. You're so welcome. Uh, we met each other through the social impact grapevine, I guess we could say, right, in the ecosystem. And Michael has begun his own consulting firm that's called Wood North Advisory. And I gave kind of a brief understanding of what Wood North Advisory does in the intro, but I would love for you to talk about your story about getting to that point because, you know, all of us that are founders and those folks who are EDs and those folks who are starting their own social enterprise, that kind of journey to the launch is always really interesting to hear. So could you give us an idea of what took you to this particular point? Sure. Yeah. And it's a bit of a varied journey, but where I'm at today, Woodnorth Advisory, we provide strategic growth consulting, social enterprise business planning, and capital advisory services to nonprofit and for-profit mission-driven organizations. And that service line is really a culmination of my professional history. So when I started working, I was an investment banking analyst at a small healthcare group here in town focused on mergers and acquisitions. And from there, I moved on to do corporate banking. So I was really heavily involved in the traditional finance world and, and for-profit business. And frankly, I had a God moment in 2016 where I felt really pressed to use that business skill set to help other people. 
So I decided to go back to school and get my MBA and focus on social enterprise and impact investing and other ways to use that skill set to help other people. So I went to Vanderbilt for the MBA program there. I was very involved with the Turner Family Center for Social Ventures. During my time in school, I had an impact investing internship. I did several social enterprise consulting projects. And upon graduation, I went to work for a nonprofit here in town helping formerly incarcerated men and women get back on their feet after they got released to community. And while I was there, I was the strategic growth director and we managed a couple different social enterprises and we launched a third while I was there. And this was really my first foray into the nonprofit world. And I saw how effective social enterprise was at supporting not only the impact work of the organization, but also the budget and providing a different area of revenue diversification. So I left that position, I think it was five, six months ago now, to start Wood North Advisory, where I'm packaging that entire professional history to help nonprofits and for-profit social enterprises really enhance the social impact they have through sound business strategy and the appropriate capital sources. And this is the kind of stuff I could just sit and hear people who are smart like you are and have done the boots on the ground work and have the book knowledge. And I just think all that you bring to this social impact ecosystem is so important. And particularly now when, you know, our friends who are working super hard need to discuss the current state of affairs and understand how fundraising and development is going to work. I mean, we obviously are going to have a new normal, but we can't wait for that new normal to kind of present itself. It's like we need to get in before then and understand what Mm -hmm. that's about, right? And I know that some of this has to do with that generic word, which all of us who um, grow things have to kind of contend with, which is pivoting right? Mm -hmm. So let's just talk generally, because I'm super psyched about the social enterprise stuff. And I want us to dig into that. But can you talk to me a little bit about what it looks like in the fundraising and development world at this point, and what pivots or types of pivots you believe nonprofits particularly are going to have to consider as they move forward? Sure. It's a really interesting question. I mean, We are in a time unlike any other with coronavirus being both a a public health crisis and an economic crisis, which is really hitting traditional fundraising methods on all fronts. I mean, so many nonprofit organizations rely on fundraisers and face-to-face interactions and storytelling um, and knowledge sharing in order to fulfill their revenue strategy and Many foundations, many individuals, uh, many government grant-making entities are becoming increasingly tight-fisted in this environment because money has disappeared in a matter of weeks. I mean, we've seen a 30% hit to the market cap of a lot of the major indexes, and people are reacting in a way where they're not giving as much to the charities of their choice. And that presents a very big issue for nonprofits. We saw in the last recession that 11% of private philanthropy went away over those three, four years of economic recession. And that doesn't even take into consideration the reduced funding coming from government sources. So that's a really big deal. And when we talk about pivots, 
there are really two ways to affect your cash position, and that's through revenue and also expense control. So when we're talking about nonprofits, we're talking about organizations that are uniquely positioned to have more revenue opportunities available to them than their for-profit counterparts. Nonprofits can raise money from private foundations, government entities, individuals, corporate sponsors, and they can also earn money through social enterprise. And it's one of the many levers that are available to nonprofits to affect their top line and increase Mm. revenue in such a time. So when we're talking about pivoting at the revenue level, it's really about considering different places to find it and how to be more effective in pursuing it. So it sounds like what we're talking about, and I think this piggybacks exactly what you've said, is we're asking nonprofits to consider broadening their revenue portfolio and looking at streams that could, in fact, complement what they're doing, but include, for some, this new entity. I know it's been around for a while, but for folks to consider what these social enterprises might look like. Am I at least tracking what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. So social enterprise is an option. It is by no means a silver bullet for organizations. It, it's a calculated risk. It takes effort. It takes resources. But it's another tool in the toolkit that organizations can use to achieve a diversified revenue strategy. Okay. So let's just jump in. So how do we start thinking about adding an additional revenue line to our organization in the form of a social enterprise? It's important for a leadership team or a board to really understand what social enterprise is and what they expect to receive from it before they can decide whether or not it's going to be right for that organization. And a social enterprise can really be used to enhance the social impact and the revenue diversification of an organization. So it's important to consider things that are aligned with the mission of the organization and for which there are also market opportunities. So something that I tend to think about is that nonprofits that are raising several million dollars in their annual budget every year from foundations and individual contributors are only able to raise that much money because they're creating significant value in our communities. They just haven't found a market for those services or products yet. So when we're talking about considering social enterprise, it's really looking at the value that you're already creating and deciding whether or not there's a market for those services. Okay, so help me with that. Is there a way for us to even create right now in real time an organization that has a specific mission and then what you would see as alignment as, you know, a board and the exec staff think about what product service program they could create for the marketplace that aligns. So do you have an example of an organization that did take on a social enterprise and walk us through that thinking, right, and listening and then the creation of it? Yeah, I can use a, a fairly well-known local example. Thistle Farms is a good one. Um, I, I spoke with Hal on a panel last week, and he was telling sort of the origin story of the Thistle Farms manufacturing arm. And for those of you who don't know, Thistle Farms serves 
women who have been uh, facing addiction and trafficking in their lives and are looking to turn that around. And they offer housing and workforce development and employment opportunities and a host of other resources to these women. But many years ago, they decided that they wanted to be able to create jobs for these women. They saw that they were coming through the program, they were being successful, but what they really needed in addition to what was already being provided was employment. At that point, they decided that they were going to pursue a market of manufacturing different lotions and soaps and candles and other home goods for which there was a market, and that market has proven itself over the past number of years, and also created a way for those women to become employed. So it hit the impact mission of creating employment and furthering the success of these women coming through the program. And it's also a lucrative social enterprise opportunity because they're now selling these products across the country. Okay, I get that. And what I also like is the mission for Thistle Farms was about serving those women who uh, were certainly marginalized by a variety of sectors in the community. And as they continued to think about how to deliver that mission for the ultimate goal of creating a solution, they understood that it was about employment. Mm -hmm. So just as you said, the program is marvelous and the women were certainly succeeding, but then the next step wasn't as clear. So I think I really appreciate the alignment of the mission with the particular social enterprise. So instead of you know, thinking about creating some food type because somebody's got a great recipe, you think about in your mission, what is it that's going to move those you are serving towards another step into the ultimate solution? So for Thistle Farms, it's about disrupting the cycle of, you know, kind of generational addiction and certainly the horrors of trafficking. And one way to do that is certainly to serve them with information and empowerment and different skills. But if the employment is always that thing that that is a barrier. And so having their own workforce development opportunity makes great sense in terms of the social enterprise because you're not reinventing the wheel. You are still in your wheelhouse, if you will. I think it doesn't make it less scary, right? It doesn't make the challenges as very extreme, but it certainly allows somebody who is already thinking in that particular piece of the ecosystem how they can do something with some success, a lot of work, but with some success. So now the organization understands best how moving forward with social enterprise can actually cause them to actually do more for those that they intend to serve. What are some things that the board and the exec team need to think about who do they need to talk to? How do they move forward from kind of design table to implementation or learning how to begin to think about the launch? Sure. In the beginning stages, you got to make sure that everyone is on board. Like I said, social enterprise is a calculated risk and starting a company, Deb, I know you know this, I know this, um, <laughs> it is hard. It is a challenge. Mm. There are hurdles, there are roadblocks, there are obstacles. And if your management team and your board aren't on board with the idea and aren't committed to pushing through and meeting those challenges and adapting, it's going to fail. So step one is have this conversation in-house, really get everyone around the table and committed to the idea before you take that first step towards implementation. 
Because if you don't, it doesn't matter how well written your plan is. It doesn't matter how much funding <laughs> you get. It's just not going to pan out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really, really want to stress that for people who are considering social enterprise is that it's a challenge. The results can be beautiful and empowering and wonderful for the people you serve and for your organization. But it is not easy. And so because it's not easy, you should be talking about what are the other challenges that we've faced in the past and how did we handle those as an organization? Like yeah. Do we yeah. overworry? Do we back down? Do we adapt? Do we rise to the occasion? Look back maybe three weeks in your organizational history and see what happened when all the news hit and everything had to shut down, right? Did yeah. we pivot quickly? Was there you know, a grinding start to our response? Are we able to push through adversity and get to the other side and continue serving our population? Because that's going to be a really good litmus test for how you handle the challenges that are going to come with trying to start a business. Another question that leadership teams should be asking if they're considering this is, are we healthy enough? And yes, physical health is important, particularly now, but (laughs) uh, I want to stress the, the financial health of your organization. Is there a little bit of cushion? I think, unfortunately, we work in an industry where surplus has historically been a dirty word. Mm. But I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't know if all of my opinions are popular, but I think surplus is a good thing. Surplus provides cushion and security for risk taking. And programmatic health is also a big one. You want to make sure that if you're trying to implement social enterprise, you're not putting out other fires. You don't want to be distracted by programmatic challenges or things that need fixing if you're trying to start something new, because when everything is important, Nothing is important, so you want to be in a position where you can best focus your resources and your time and your leadership team on creating something new. And the last thing would be making sure you either have the right personnel or the willingness to hire them to pull it off because Mm. implementation with social enterprise is a different mindset and skill set than it takes to run a nonprofit and Neither is necessarily better or worse than the other. They're just different in skills and business and running surplus, creating profit, paying attention to the marketplace, key performance indicators, all those uh, business buzzwords that we like to throw around. That we know, yeah. Yeah, they are important to pay attention to, but it takes a different set of eyes to pay attention to those things. So those are sort of the the pre-implementation, pre-first step questions that I would be sure to ask. I like those. They're large questions, right? That require a good dose of honesty in terms of capacity of the current team and capacity for the courage it would take to do it. I think it also, this is the other piece I love about this. As the social impact world moves towards questions of sustainability and larger impact, partially because um, the millennials and Zers are demanding it, It really does move us, I say this a lot, but it moves us from the charity work, right, to impact work, to solving population level size social injustices. And so to even consider in a team delivering a mission that we're now talking about a piece that is actually for profit, it really does move that social impact understanding of how we do things into a very, very different sphere. And it's one that everyone can be comfortable with once you understand that 
pulling that kind of enterprise into your portfolio for revenue is only going to allow your impact to be deeper and wider. It's only going to allow you to tell your story to more people for more impact. And it's only going to be able to have you help more people for a longer term kind of impact than ever before. Mm -hmm. It's very, very exciting. So besides the idea and working the idea, is there a whole nother, I don't know, dictionary for people (laughs) to have to kind of consult? I'm trying to make it so that people understand that this is completely accessible and that entrepreneurship and particularly social enterprise is really just about digging into the idea and working it, not just going and Mm. buying a whole bunch of stuff and then having a table at some you know, trade show and hoping people will buy, but really thinking and digging deep. And it's the thinking part. What do we need to know about the investor world? Is it different talking to investors or is it pretty much the same? It is very different. Um, The impact story matters, you know, all, all the things that you share with foundations and individual contributors and corporate sponsors matter. Any investor who's looking at a nonprofit social enterprise or a for-profit social enterprise is going to be considering the impact. So that part of the story is very important. But in addition to that, there's also the financial return consideration and the different thought processes that go into that and the different considerations that go into that for an investor. So, for example, there are foundations and private investors and wealthy individuals and funds that would be interested in taking a look at funding startup social enterprises, but only if there's a financial return involved. So the story goes from, we'll take this grant, we'll provide these services, and we'll tell you about it at the end of the year, to we're going to take this loan or equity investment or venture philanthropy capital And we're going to invest it in this program that generates revenue. And we're going to tell you about it at the end of the year. Oh, but you're also going to make 5% back on that money five years from now, seven years from now. However, the investment is structured, there is a need to prove your ability to either repay the investment or grow the enterprise such that the investor's value is increasing over time as a result of the investment. That was so succinct and very clear. I appreciate that. What I love about it is that it's not that different from what we do. And to your point, there usually is an annual kind of reporting out, but when it has to do with donors, major gifts, and it does have to do with some grants and some corporations, there can be a quarterly kind of report. I see some symmetry between the two in that when an investor comes in, It is not unlike a donor in that they are investing in the impact that you say, declare, promise, guarantee you're going to have on a particular situation. And that the investor, the only difference is the investor is providing a substantial amount of money and is interested because they believe that they can have an impact, first of all. But secondly, that it will also make money for them. Correct. Which can, again, make it feel a little bit cloudy in that nonprofit world. But for our friends out there who are even considering it, we're looking at it as a way, as you started out the conversation, Michael, with a broadening of the opportunities for revenue streams into your particular organization. 
So Michael, as we wrap, and if there is something that I didn't ask and you'd like to bring into the space of the conversation, please do before that time. I want to make sure that our listeners who are working so hard to make the world better aren't made to feel that they have to do a social enterprise or that if they don't, they are somehow letting down their organization. Could you speak to that for me? Sure. For anyone who is listening and has decided that social enterprise isn't for them and maybe grappling with those feelings, that's okay. I mean, social enterprise is not mandatory. It's not the only way out of an overly concentrated revenue situation. It can be challenging to come up with ideas, certainly, but there's always the ability to be creative. There's always the ability to adapt to what's going on around you. I don't know if Girl Scouts of America ever thought that they'd be running the biggest cookie business in the country, but <laughs> here I am snacking yes. on Thin Mints every day. <laughs> that, that, that's probably example. my favorite. That's my favorite example of social enterprise because it's just so delicious. Um, <laughs> and so it's not always going to be obvious. It won't always be apparent, you know, what you can do to support the revenues of your organization. Social enterprise isn't going to be for everybody, but in a lot of cases, there are ways to be creative and figure out a product or service that you're either developing an expertise in, a data set you have access to, a population you have access to. There can be a way to create value for other people and extract a fee for that service. Thank you for that. That was important. I think also social enterprise in the context which people are working, the Thistle Farms example was great, but also we're finding in some of our international schools that it's one thing to have students going to school and, and empowering them to have a really bright future. It's also helpful for if the community itself suffers from unemployment, how to empower them through something like learning to sew and creating uniforms for the students so that then the ecosystem gets bigger and bigger. So to Michael's point, it can feel like it can be this awesome, heavy thing to try to lift. But in fact, just from some fun, free thinking, it may be that as you create your own word map and figure out kind of where you want your impact to land, there may be these other things that are kind of around that particular goal that can help you get there. It may just take some creative thinking or creative conversations over a cup of coffee. Yeah. And, and on that note, a lot of really good ideas can come internally. Some of the most fun ideation sessions are with entire teams from organizations, because chances are, if you've got 5, 10, 15, maybe 30, 40 people working on your staff, that's a lot of brain power that can be tapped into facilitating an ideation session of, you know, what could we do? What could we offer? What are we doing that we could be driving financial value through? And really inviting the people who work for your organization into that conversation and just kicking ideas around and, you know, letting everything fly and going through that creative process together can be a lot of fun. I think that's terrific. I also think the end user would be really important to have in that discussion as well. Absolutely. So that there's ownership across the board and bringing those guys into the conversation can really streamline some thinking, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. They know what matters to them better than anybody. Oh, exactly. And all of us working so hard to make the world better, uh, I think sometimes we forget to have those conversations and they are critical. Those are the folks who can have the wisest 
and the most pertinent information for us to garner from to move our organizations forward. Michael, this has been so much fun. We could go on forever. Now, I know that you are a great fan of Girl Scouts <laughs> and their cookies. <laughs> Did I show my hand? About, I'm all about that. Um, but I also wanted to ask if there were any books or resources you might suggest as people now may have a little bit of a fire lit under them to think about just walking into that social enterprise world. Yeah, that's a good question. There there are a lot of resources out there. One that I've enjoyed in particular for navigating the capital side of the equation or the funding side of the equation is a book called Impact Investing. And that's by Jed Emerson and Anthony Bug Levine. And they were the two people who really coined the phrase impact investing and wrote all about it. So I think the book was published in 2010, but it was a good resource for me when I was starting to try to understand the capital ecosystem. Um, also, if you go to Wood North Advisory's page on LinkedIn, there's an archive of articles there explaining some of the nuances of social enterprise and how it works, the questions nonprofit boards should be asking, and detailing different types of investment. Social Enterprise Alliance is a good place to find resources and other people operating in the space who you can learn from and reach out to. I've been spending time just reaching out to people during this period of self-isolation, combing the SEA website, that's Social Enterprise Alliance, and just reaching out to people say, hey, I'm curious about your model. Can we talk? And people have been overwhelmingly open to talking. So I guess the best resource is probably people already practicing. You mm. can learn from their learning and not have mm -hmm. to go through the pains of your own learning before right. really thinking about the idea. I love that. Michael, thank you so much. We all just appreciate how much you're bringing to the ecosystem in terms of empowering people to figure out how to diversify their revenue portfolio. And you've made it seem, I won't say easy, but you've made it seem as though there's a path to follow. And we will have stuff up on the website so people can understand how they can contact you. Michael Woodnorth of Woodnorth Advisory, thank you for your time today. Thank you for coming to 3 a.m. What's Keeping You Up at Night. Thank you, Deb. It was a pleasure. Great takeaways from our guest, Michael Woodnorth, including align your potential social enterprise venture directly with your mission and your brand and prepare to put a lot of time and effort into concept design and market analysis before beginning any venture. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining us. I'm excited to announce that since our conversation, the McFarland Group and Wood North Advisory have created a virtual series event called Candid COVID Conversations, uniting leaders from sector-specific organizations in the social impact space to learn from each other with the help of a panel of experts to effectively and efficiently approach their missions delivery post-COVID. Each virtual event hosts one sector at a time. The first sectors in our vibrant social impact ecosystem selected for this opportunity are the Hunger and Housing Group, Recovery and Reentry Group, and Education. The first event launches just before this 3 a.m. episode airs at the end of April 2020, with organizations and experts in the hunger relief and housing spaces coming together. The remaining two events will occur the first weeks in May 2020. We'll invite Michael back so we can share this experience with all of you. We are thrilled about it. 
Our next podcast introduces the world to an exciting venture rising out of the Mid-Hudson Valley area in Poughkeepsie, New York. Day One Early Learning Community is building a community where kids feel safe, seen, and celebrated. They are dedicated to creating the best learning opportunities for young children in New York State by providing state-of-the-art training for early childhood teachers. Their founding executive director, Dr. Julie Reese, joins us on the next 3 a.m. What's Keeping You Up at Night? Thank you for joining us. My name is Deb McFarlane Enright. This podcast is a production of the McFarlane Group, a company formed to help those disrupt the status quo to make the world better. If you are new to our podcast community, welcome. Subscribe to our podcast and join the conversation at themcfarlandgroup.com. Finally, I hope all of you are well. Please let us know how the McFarland Group can be of help to you. We are here for you. Until next time.